Turn with me this morning in God's Word to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. We'll read together this morning just the first eight verses. Revelation chapter 1. Very easy to find, isn't it? Just at the back of the Bible. The last book, the first chapter. Reading, of course, from the authorized version. Let's hear the word of God. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy. And keep those things which were written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, And the first begotten of the dead And the prince of the kings of the earth Unto him that loved us And washed us from our sins in his own blood And hath made us kings and priests unto God And his father To him be glory and dominion forever and ever Amen Behold he cometh with clouds And every eye shall see him And they also which pierced him And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Amen. We know that the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now, my text this morning is taken from Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. And my theme today is the proclamation of the true worshipper. Now, since moving into this new meeting house on the 15th of June this year, we've been focusing our attention on the subject of the true worship of God. Remember it's written, John 4 and 24, God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And in light of this subject, we had looked at the protocol of the true worshiper. I don't know if you noticed the text on the glass on the outside porch as you entered the building. But on one of the doors there, the words of Psalm 104 are Inscribed in the glass, enter into his gates with thanksgiving, 
and into his courts with praise. And we told you that we enter in because we've got the right summons. Enter in is a command. We also enter in on the ground of the right sacrifice. That's the ground of the shed blood. Remember, that's the only way that we can approach and meet with God on the ground of the shed blood. And then we enter in because we've got a right submission. We're, we're focusing on who God is and remembering his person and his purpose and so on and so forth. And then we, we enter in because we've got a right spirit. We come to sing, we come to shout, we come to speak unto him. Now, my second message was uh, entitled The Praise of the True Worshipper. And that was based in Revelation 5 and 9. That's the second text on the uh, glass on the outside porch. And last week I preached on the priority of the true worshipper at Psalm 29 and verse 2. And that's one of the texts on the glass here in the inside porch. And it says, give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now, now today we're going to think of another part of this subject of true worship. And that's the proclamation of the true worshipper. And it's based here on Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. And part of this text is also inscribed on the glass in the inside porch. The Apostle John, remember, the youngest of the Lord's beloved disciples, has been banished to the Isle of Patmos because of a wicked spirit of opposition in Asia Minor to the cause of Christ and to the church. The year's approximately A.D. 90. John's a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus. He's a man of strong convictions who greatly cherished the great precious truths of the gospel. He was a man who was prepared to lay down his life for the cause of Christ and the gospel. John sadly has been censored by the Roman authorities in his day because of the preaching of the word of God, and his testimony to the person and work of Christ. Now, I want to ask the question, how did John cope at this time? After all, this was a difficult day to be a Christian. These were hard times for the church. This was a time of fiery persecution. Did he wallow in self-pity? Did, did he sort of think to himself, poor me? Was he murmuring and complaining about his lot and about his hardship and being taken away from his church fellowship and his family? Was he blaming God and saying, Lord, it's all your fault? I'm in this mess. Was he, was he questioning the Lord's leading in his life? And the answer to that is no. You see, John spent his time in Patmos and for John, it was a time of enjoying fellowship and communion with God himself. He had a tremendous peace in his heart. He was in the center of the will of God. He had a blessed contentment in the midst of his trials. Here he had an opportunity to engage and enjoy fellowship with the Lord. Despite the difficult days and the rough time, he had a desire to keep the Sabbath day. Revelation 1 and verse 10. He had spiritual desires after the Lord. He had 
a heart that was fixed on the Lord himself. And also here in Patmos, not only did he enjoy fellowship and communion with God, not only did he have desires after God and kept the Lord's day, but here he had a splendid revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, Revelation chapter 1 verse through to 21 doesn't just speak about the future. It doesn't just speak about the seven literal historical churches in Asia Minor. It doesn't just deal with the overthrow of the Antichrist, the rise and fall of Babylon the Great, and the defeat of the old serpent, the devil. Those are things that are there in Revelation, all worthy of study. But first and foremost, these chapters, Revelation 1 to 21, are a revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice how the book opens. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ, Not revelations, plural, but revelation, singular. And the word revelation means an unveiling, a disclosure of what? Of Christ. The book is all about Christ in his person and work as he now is in heaven. See, John's in a difficult situation. He's facing real problems. The church is going through fiery persecution. This is real stuff. This is hard. This is life changing. And what's the answer to get you through it all? Here's the answer. Get your eyes in Christ. And that's what John was doing. And that's the lesson he would teach us today. In all our trials and tribulation, in every problem and peril that we face, we must do the same. Within our hearts and minds, we must focus on Christ. Now, John had barely begun when he lifted up his heart in praise and adoration to the Lord. Listen to what he says in verses 5 and 6. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. These verses, of course, are really a, a doxology, a hymn of praise. And I want you to notice here that in the context of mentioning the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that John centers his praise on the person and the work of Christ. Now, as you think about the proclamation of the true worshiper, I want you to think of two or three things. I want you to think, first of all, of the person that's proclaimed. It says in verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. I want you to notice the three titles that John uses here. Faithful witness. See, that's a reference to Christ's testimony as our prophet. The word faithful means one who is true. One who is just, one who stands fast to his word, one whose promise is good. In other words, you can trust his word. His word is good and true and pure. The word witness here in the Greek is martyrio, uh, from which we get the English word martyr. And John bore witness to the truth, not only about God the Father, 
but about God the Son. And he was bearing a good witness to the personal work of Christ, even to the point where he's willing to die for Christ's sake, if necessary. The Lord Jesus Christ, John knows, was a faithful witness in the prophetic office. Christ was a true prophet who taught and told about the great need and the way of God's salvation. Remember the Father said from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And a faithful witness needs to be listened to. He needs to be heard. And, and are we listening to his voice? Do we say with Samuel, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Not only is a faithful witness, but notice the words, the first begotten of the dead. Now, now what does that mean? That's a reference to Christ in his priestly office. The words, the first begotten of the dead, mean that Christ was the first one to rise from the dead, not to die again. You see, when we read our Bibles, we read of stories where the dead were raised again bodily. You only have to think of the widow's son in the days of Elijah. Think about Jairus' daughter who died when she was 12 in bed. She had just died. Think of the story of the widow of Nain's son. And how that the coffin was being carried out of the village of Nain. And the Lord Jesus met him just at the entrance into the little village on the way to the cemetery. And he raised that young boy from the dead and restored him to life to his mother. And then we think about Lazarus. He was dead in the tomb. Four days. In fact, they said, Behold, he stinketh. And the Lord Jesus raised these individuals to life. But here's the point. They all died again. But the Lord Jesus was the first to rise from the dead, never to die again. And that's what that means. The first begotten of the dead. Look at Revelation chapter 1 verse 18. This is what he said to John. In this unveiling of himself. I am he that liveth and was dead. That's a reference to his resurrection and crucifixion. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And the word amen means so shall it be. And that's why I've encouraged you in the past during morning worship in particular when we offer prayer that you say amen not only in your heart but verbally so that congregationally we're saying to the Lord let it be Lord let, let this stand in your sight and notice the words in verse 18 and have the keys of hell and of death you see when Jesus Christ suffered the horrible death of crucifixion and rose again bodily from the dead and ascended to his father, he did so to present the sacrifice of himself. And now he enjoys in heaven an ongoing work of praying for his people called his throne work on the ground of that same shed blood that he shed in Calvary. He's on the throne. And before the throne, he's pleading our cause. He's mentioning our names. And that's Christ in his priestly office. Because he's the first begotten of the dead. And notice the words. 
and the prince of the kings of the earth. And that's a reference to his kingly office. Jesus Christ today is king of kings. He's lord of lords. He rules and reigns now. He's not, he's not waiting to rule and reign. He rules and reigns now in the kingdom of grace and in the kingdom of glory to come. He is king now. It's not just the future. It's not that he's waiting to become the king. He is the king. And glory to God, he is putting our and his enemies under his feet. Glory to God, he is in absolute sovereign control of the universe and even this little province and all the things that are going on. He is working to fulfill the Father's great plan of redemption, to bring glory to his name and for the good of his church. You see, we're learning who Christ is. He's not only the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jesus refers to his humanity. Christ refers to his ministry. But he's also the mediator of the new covenant. And what does he do? He fulfills three offices. The prophetic office, the priestly office, the kingly office. And he did so not only on earth, but he's doing now so in heaven. There's the person that's proclaimed. And as we come as worshippers, having entered in with the right protocol in the sense, as we come to praise and worship God, as we come to prioritize, thinking, give glory unto the Lord and worship him in the beauty of holiness, what do we proclaim? We proclaim the person of Christ to the Father. Notice, secondly, <coughs> the particulars that's proclaimed. Look at the middle of verse 5. Unto him that loved us. You see, as, as John ponders Christ, who he is, what he does, he bursts into song. John couldn't contain himself. He opens his mouth and he begins to sing this doxology. Unto him that loved us. And in this particular proclamation, there's a principle here. Loved us. Isn't that amazing? Are we not born sinners by nature and practice? Do, do we not deserve wrath? The wrath of God due because of our sins? How could he love us? Why does he love us? Doesn't it defy human reasoning to talk about loved us? Could we find one reason? Are we not unholy and, and unlovable and have nothing good in us spiritually? Are we not positively sinful? Have we not got a heart that loves sin and a bias to sin? Is not the, the best that we say and think and do all unrighteous in his sight? Well, why does he love us? Turn over there to Deuteronomy. Look with me at this portion of scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, and we'll look at verses 7 and 8. You should underline these in your Bible. And the next time you're depressed and you're down, you're thinking about your circumstances and your situation, just remember, unto him that loved us. It says in Deuteronomy 7 and verse 7, the Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, 
because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you, and because you would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the house of hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Isn't that tremendous? I have loved you. What's the reason? No reason. Because I have loved you. We're loved eternally. He can come and stand and tell us, whisper into our ear, I've loved you with an everlasting love from all eternity, from before the world was made, from before time began. In the very covenant of redemption between father and son. When, when the father talked about giving a people to the son. He had already set his electing love upon us. He loved us freely. Hosea 14 verse 5. I will love them freely. It's without money. And without price. It's loved specifically. Listen to this. John 15 verse 9. As the father hath loved me. So have I loved you. It's not a pattern. As the Father loves me, so I have loved you. Think about the height and depth of Christ's love. Aren't we loved sacrificially? Didn't the Apostle Paul say in Galatians 2 and 20, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That brings us to Calvary. That brings us to that place of crucifixion and the shedding of the blood. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I think of that hymn. I was tempted to sing it this morning but I thought the children would be away so we'll sing it next Lord's Day. I am so glad that our Father in heaven tells of his love in the book he has given. Wonderful things in the Bible I see. But this is the dearest. Jesus loves me. Now we can't explain it. But I want to tell you something else. You see the word under him that loved us. Underline the word loved. Because in the Greek. That is a continuous. Repeated action. He has loved me. He does love me. And he will go on loving me. You see, it's from eternity past. It's in the present. And it stretches into the future. That's the great principle here. I want you to notice something else. There's a great purging here in this particular proclamation. Because he says in the text, And washed us from our sins in his own blood. Notice the condition. Our sins. Sin remembers a falling short. Romans 3 and 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Think of a game of archery. Think of a, 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 a standard set at a distance from the, the archer with his bow and arrow. And he's to hit the target. And then he, he falls short. He, he, he misses the mark. And, and of course that's what sin is. God has set a, a, a perfect standard of absolute perfection and conformity to his law. And, and um, we set out to meet that standard, but we all fall short. That, that's what sin is. It's the missing the mark. It's a failure to hit the target. It's a falling short, but it's more than that. 
When we think about our sins, not only have we fallen short of God's divine standard of perfection because we're born sinners by nature and practice, but sin remembers also a breach of God's law. It's a transgression of the law. It's a stepping over the boundary. Isn't that what happened in Eden? You think of the Garden of Eden. I don't know how many trees were there. Say a hundred. We could say a thousand. And God said to them, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And what did Adam and Eve do? Adam and Eve broke that very law. They stepped over the, 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 the boundary. Sin remembers a transgression of the law. I, I was thinking this week, especially as we were walking through Loch Gaul on Thursday and um, there were mainly country roads and there was quite a lot of cattle on the roads and um, I, I, I was thinking of young heifers that were in a field and I, I was thinking to myself, these heifers could break out. And of course, if there'd been a hole in the hedge at all, they probably would have broke out because that's the way they are. That, that's the instinct that they have. And if one comes through the hedge, the rest will be sure to follow. I was thinking of those words. I can't remember who penned them. I know it's a, a, a pop song or, or, or was at least in the past. One of the lines is, I, I want to break free. And, and it's not the mindset of many, young and old alike. I want to break free from God's law. I, I want to do my thing. Our sins. There, there's the condition. And you cannot this morning be saved. And savingly join to Christ until you face up to your sins. Lord, I've fallen short. Lord, I have transgressed your law. Lord, I'm under guilt and condemnation. See, God never glibly just overlooks sin. That's a modern lie. He doesn't sweep it under the carpet. He doesn't turn a blind eye. Sin must be dealt with. Sin must be excavated and put away. And, and, and John in this particular proclamation, what does he mention? Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins. In other words, sins was dealt with. Note the cleansing here. Washed us. We're going to sing in closing this morning. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? I, I'm conscious this morning that many don't like that hymn and they don't like that terminology. You see, the old apostates lamblast the Free Presbyterian Church and every other Reformed Bible-believing fundamentalist church and they accuse us of preaching a, a gospel of gore, the gospel of the butcher shop, slaughterhouse religion they talk about. But we're not. We're preaching the gospel of the blood of Christ. Because you can never be cleansed from your sin if you're not washed. That is how sin is washed. It's mentioned here in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. It's mentioned again in Revelation chapter 5 and in the verse 9. When it says, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. It's mentioned again in Revelation chapter 7 and in the verse 14. And he said to me, these are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. When you sing, are you washed in the blood? What we're, we're asking you to consider is, 
Have you been cleansed from your sin by the trusting and the sprinkling of the blood of Christ? The word wash not only means cleansing, but it also means being freed and being set loose, no longer under its control or its power. You think of the night of the Passover, how the children of Israel were set free. They were loosed from being bondmen and in bondage to the house of Pharaoh. What were they loosed by? By the power of the blood. There's a purging here. I want you to notice very quickly, there's a price here. If you look at the text very carefully, it says, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. I'm glad it doesn't say baptism. I'm glad, glory to God, it doesn't say good works or, or church membership or, or clean living. I, I think of John, 1 John 1 and 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. You think of the phrase, the special phrase that's used here. We're focusing in on the special nature of the death of Christ. Jesus Christ wasn't stoned to death. He wasn't strangled to death. <coughs> he was put to death by the horrible death of crucifixion, which involved the shedding of his blood. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, he entered heaven with or by his own blood. Remember, it's the blood of the God-man. The one in whom was two distinct natures, God and man, and yet one person forever. Doesn't the Bible say in Leviticus 17 and 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and the value of the life is the value of the blood. And that's why Christ's blood is so precious. And you know, it wasn't spilled. I really don't like people talking about the spilled blood of Christ. The word spill speaks to me of an accident. I, I could spill the water here as I, I, I did one Sunday, if you remember. That's an accident. But bloodshed is deliberate. And the Bible tells us without the shedding of blood is no remission. And the Lord Jesus shed his blood on the cross as an offering for our sin, to expiate our sin, to put it away. It was the price agreed in the covenant of redemption between him and his father. And if you turn over there to the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 3, and you read there with me in the verse 25, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God. Propitiation. Sin put away. Wrath of God appeased. The, the holiness of God satisfied through faith in his blood. That's the object of our faith. You can't divorce Christ from his blood. You can't say, well, I have faith in Christ, but I have nothing to do with that uh, blood or, or, or slaughterhouse religion. It's not the gospel of God. It is the gospel of God. And it's through faith in his blood, the blood that he shed. Let me ask you this morning, have you faith in the blood of Christ? Have you come to that point and place where you trusted him? I was having a wee laugh the 12th day of July and look, all the Reverend Middleton had got a fancy chair. He was there as a spectator. Um, he was sh shouting out rather loudly. Um, 
uh, a particular name at me and everybody was looking round. They thought that Jerry Adams had joined the parade in Lockall. Uh, and um, everybody was looking at him. And as he sat down in the chair, you know, he was up shouting, you know, as he sat down, didn't the chair collapse? And of course, those around him had a wee giggle and a wee laugh. You think of a chair. You think of Christ. Will this chair hold me? And you'll not know until you put your weight on it. Now, if it collapses, of course, you'll know. Can't. But I want to tell you, if you put your faith and trust in Christ, enter into fellowship with him, Christ will save you and it'll wash you from your sin. Very quickly, there's a great people here. Notice the word us. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us. Do you see that? Loved us, washed us and made us. He's talking about the redeemed on earth. Are you among the redeemed on earth? Are you a child of God? Have you come to the place where you put your faith and trust in Christ and you can sing and say, I am redeemed. That's the particulars that are proclaimed. And notice something else. The privileges that are proclaimed. Not just the person. Jesus Christ in this threefold office. Not just these particulars that I've mentioned. But notice the privileges. It says in verse 6, And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He has made us two things. He has made us princes. To reign with him. He has made us not only joint heirs with God, but heirs with himself. And he's made us priests unto God. A kingdom of princes to rule and reign with him. And a kingdom of priests. You're a priest this morning. If you're in Christ. If you're living for Christ. Through the strength of Christ. You're one of his priests this morning. Now, of course, that's a unique privilege. It's a wonderful privilege. And if you turn over this morning as we close to Hebrews chapter 10, sorry, Hebrews 13, and look with me at the verse 15. This is what it says. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. And as you think this morning, I'm not only a prince in the eyes of God, but I'm a priest. And what does a priest offer? He offers the sacrifice of praise. This is one of the spiritual sacrifices you can offer unto the Lord. Doesn't the Bible say, Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me? So when you offer a song from your heart, no matter what it sounds like, no matter whether it's in the right note or the right key or not, the Lord interprets that, the Lord receives that as a sacrifice of praise. Also this morning, when we, when we give... Not only give unto the Lord the glory due to his name and, 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 and prioritize him, because remember that's man's chief end, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, but, but giving to support the work of God. It, material substance for, for the well-being of the work of God and the furtherance of the gospel. That's another aspect to that sacrifice. Also, working, but to do good. Practical things. 
And also, he says, and to communicate, forget not. That has to do with preaching. We could add in praying. We could add in listening. These are all aspects that tie into this sacrifice. That as a priest of God, I sing praise to him. As a priest of God, I give back to God a portion of what God has given me. And he only asks for a tenth. As a priest of God, I do good in his name. As a priest of God, I preach and talk about him. As a priest of God, I pray to him. I pray for others to him. I listen to what he says. And I seek with a consecrated, obedient heart to bring honor and the glory to him. The privileges that are proclaimed. This is what has made us. He's made us kings and priests unto our God and his Father. Is it any wonder he adds the words, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The word amen, as I've said, means so shall it be. The word dominion means preeminence. Absolute sovereign control. It belongs to him. I trust this morning, as you think about the subject of worship, you'll remember that protocol that's necessary. That you will come with praise. You've got the new song in your heart. The song of the soul set free. This morning, you'll remember the priority. I've got to give unto the Lord the glory that's due to his name. I've got to worship him in the beauty of holiness. So when you come to God's house, you remember that. And then we make this proclamation. We focus on Christ. And we take these particulars to mind. This is what he's done for us. He has loved us. He has washed us. He has made us. And this is my privilege this morning to enter into his house as a prince and a king. To enter in as a priest. To offer a spiritual sacrifice. Wholly acceptable unto God. Of course, that sacrifice is a faint shadow of the great sacrifice of Christ. May the Lord bless these few words to your heart this morning. Thank you for coming. And thank you for listening.